This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Fiona O'Loughlin, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you for having me, Cheryl. It's a real pleasure, actually, because uh, we've spoken before, but that was back in 2011. Yes, that would have been after the first book. Yeah. I'd imagine writing a memoir. Now, I'm not a writer, so I'm only imagining this. But I imagine writing a memoir is sometimes like writing your CV, right? Because, you know, sometimes, and I don't know if you've done this, you write a CV and then you have to reflect on your life and reflect on what you've worked. And sometimes at the end of it, you come out thinking, wow, that's fantastic, after you've seen that CV. And sometimes at the end of it, you come out and think, oh, what the heck? What have I been doing? (laughs) Don't you think? Well, yes, because there was so much I just, out it all came. And then it was a matter of, seriously, how much are we going to go? And then I thought, well, you know what? Let's go all the way because I had two people, you know, there were two reasons for the book. One was to explain myself to my family. Uh, I've got a huge family, six brothers and sisters, mum and dad, uncles, aunts, and and I guess to an extent my ex-husband and kids. But the other reason was to speak to the part of the disease that I'm writing about, which is relapse, the relapse, uh, you know, and how soul-destroying it was. And I did feel weary for the reader at times. I'm like, oh, no. But I'm, I think I'm very happy with how it's going and how it's been received. Gosh, it's exciting. People love you. I'm going to introduce you. Fiona is an Australian comedy. She's actually royalty with an award-winning career of almost 20 years. Fiona performs to packed houses across the globe, from headlining the world-renowned Improv Comedy Club in LA to repeat sessions in Hong Kong and performing at Edinburgh Fringe, Montreal's Just for Laughs Comedy Festival, the UK's Leicester Comedy Festival, Adelaide Fringe and the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. As well as critically acclaimed stand-up comedy, Fiona is an accomplished author, publishing Me of the Never Never in 2011, and that was the one we spoke about. She's also appeared on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, Good News Week, Spicks and Specs and Celebrity Apprentice, among others. This is why we're talking to Fiona. She has a new memoir. It's called Truths from an Unreliable Witness. It's about hitting rock bottom and then realising you're only halfway down and about hanging on to your last straw of sanity and finding laughter in the darkest of times. It really is very, very confronting and I think very, very brave of you to write. I just want to talk about, um, this is part of the book that I want to talk about, that Fiona was raised in a generation of children who were to be seen but not heard unless there were guests in the house. Then she'd watch everyone telling stories, making each other laugh. 
This was where she discovered the rhythm of stories and the lubrication that alcohol lent in the telling of the stories. Years later, as a mum of five, Fiona would become one of Australia's most loved comedians, performing gigs all around the world. Fiona looked like she was living her dream, but she was hiding a secret in open sight, using alcoholism as material for her comedy and using comedy as an excuse for her alcoholism. I mean, I think that's a really profound statement. Mm. Took me a long time to to work out how much of it was the industry, how much of it was me. Terrible combination, me and that industry. I can imagine. I imagine it fast-tracked my alcoholism. Alcoholism is a very progressive disease, but it's a div- It's like any um, disease that progresses. It can be faster in others, slower in others. I think I was heading for a slow-bound train to alcoholism. And I think I pressed fast forward when I started stand-up without a doubt because I think probably if I'd stayed, if I'd been normal (laughs) and not gone into that industry, yeah, it would have delayed it maybe 10, 20 years even. But Mm. at the end of the day, I still know that I, looking back now, I was never a normal drinker. Talk to me about growing up. Let's go way back because, you know, our podcast is Stories Behind the Story. So what led you to be here talking to me? So talk to me about your childhood. I love that line that you were meant to be seen and not heard. I felt that as a child as well. And we're similar ages, actually, you and I. But talk to me about your upbringing. You're from a large family. I'm from a large family. I've got four sisters and a brother. Talk to me about that. Well, I would say something inside me as a kid was very discontent and angry. I felt, see, I came from a pretty safe family, you know, but in that era, it was a very dangerous time to be a kid. And I feel that the older we get and the further away we get from, because basically it was the last generation before the one, and I'm not saying we're the generation that came along and fixed everything, it's it's human evolution. They didn't know the war... My mum and dad are war babies, I guess. Uh, Dad was a teenager in the Second World War. But I think they didn't even know that it was safe to tell us that we are special or that we are loved. Uh, You know, that was a no, no, no go zone. And I think think that was particularly um, the case with religious, deeply religious people because, you know, my parents honestly believed that their job was to get the seven. My mother had said, you, I've got to get you seven to heaven. I mean, what a bloody trauma mm. that is in your head to get seven kids to heaven. And I was very angry with the church deep down inside. I didn't believe any of it. I thought the whole thing's a load of bullshit. But even thinking that is wicked. So I. So where, I, did, where did you grow up? In a country town in South Australia, a very... Predominantly Protestant area, so the Catholics that were there all knew each other, and it, it's almost like the York Peninsula is like an island home for me. All sets of great grandparents emigrated to this one peninsula in South Australia, and they all emigrated straight from Ireland. So we were more Irish than the Irish, you know. And this faith, it's passed down. And even though I was born and schooled post-Vatican II that hadn't come to our neck of the woods then. So we still were taught about hell 
and purgatory and, you know, babies in limbo and all the nonsense. And um, I felt it was, in, yeah, I, I, I thought the whole thing was terrifying and I didn't want to be a part of it. That point you just made, you were more Irish than Irish, that's something I can really relate to. And I think a lot of immigrants can relate to that. You know, I've got a Lebanese background, but there's Greek backgrounds, Italian backgrounds, whatever. What happened was that I saw it with my own parents. They came out here and bought the present Lebanon that they left with them. Now, Lebanon changed over the years and became way more progressive, but they have kept what it was like 50, 60 years ago. Was that yeah. the same? Is it was same? exactly the same, yeah. Yeah. And I remember we had Irish cousins come out, although cousins of the publicans actually, who were like family to us in this tiny country town. And I'll never forget uh, Trish, her name was Trish Noonan, I think, or no, Trish Kennedy. Anyway, they were spunking down at our place overnight. They, two young Irish girls, uh, about 19 at the time. I was about the same age. And they bunked down at our place uh, after a big boozy night. And the next morning, our parish priest, who was also my uncle, my great uncle, he used to drive through the uh, driveway and toot the horn just to um, give us the tahinis, an extra, you know, honk on the horn to get up in time. Anyway, mum and dad start, you know, we're all hungover as hell, but that doesn't stop you going to mass, you know, and mum and dad were like, that's it, action stations, everybody up, everybody up. And this Trish Kennedy, she turned around, she says, you just come from Ireland, and she turned around to me and she said, Jesus, she said, do you people still go to fucking mass? And I wanted to stab her in the eye with a crucifix. Yeah, that is so true, isn't it? Yeah, wow. It's incredible. I love that story. So mm. where were you in the order of the seven children? Number three. Oh, right. So that's the same with me, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we're yeah. exactly the same age. Uh, I'm a year younger than you. Similar. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I feel that too, um, separate from alcoholism, the book was also talking about, I, I kept going, oh, leave it to the book, leave it to the book. I feel, you know, having raised five kids myself and then understanding that that's what you do. You tell children that they're loved and you do make a big fuss of them. And um, I think there's a lot of women my age buckling. Yeah. Because the further away you get from that childhood that we experienced, I didn't think I grew up in the dark ages, but by hell it looks dark the further away from it you get. And that's to apportion no blame to anyone. Whatever my parents went through would be harder. You know, but that's what humans do. We evolve, we get better, we get kinder. And that kindness to children, I think, was revolutionary that's happened to babies born from the early 80s onwards, it seems, that they're a different breed of kid. And I look back and I go, oh, God, I wish (laughs) I want to go back. So you grew up there, you went to school. At what point did you decide, like, were you funny at school? Yes, I was. It was funny was so important to me. Why? Because you can't cry and laugh at the same time, you know, and I loved, I could hear the rhythm of stories around that table and I could, I was only as young as 10. We weren't, uh, you know, um, in, invited to join in or listen in much, but I, I couldn't get enough of it when I could and I could hear the rhythm and I'm like, oh, God, she's going to bugger this story up. <laughs> so I loved that. And I tell you what, my folks were brilliant the way when we turned 18, particularly Dad, he spoke to us differently. As soon as we were 18, you got that same 
tone that he would give anybody else who was an adult in his home. You know, it was wonderful feeling. Yeah. They're good people. Yeah. But it was, I think, an extremely strict upbringing. I can't imagine now you send your little kids off to school, little, you know, little kids with dimples in their knuckles, you know, dimples where knuckles are supposed to be. They're so little. And these nuns wielding bloody leather straps, it was a, it's revolting mm. and it's wrong. Mm. It's awful. I went to a Catholic school and I got the cane once and I was little. Um, so we were very poor because my my parents were immigrants and my mother used to hand knit six cardigans every week. Wow. Right? But all I wanted was a machine bought cardigan because that's what everybody yeah, yeah. else had, right? You know, it was like absolutely, it was a dream for me to get one of those one day. But one day I left or lost my cardigan or whatever and do you know I got the cane over it? Cause they oh, found my God. As if you weren't sad enough. It's so cruel, isn't it? It is. And it was all anger-based. It wasn't anything to do with discipline. They felt angry so they hit you. Yeah. Awful. Okay, so then talk to me about how you then became to be a comedian. Well, I knew I wanted to perform for sure and I thought, well, I really wanted to be an actress. I feel I'd missed the boat. You couldn't say that out loud, really, on a farm in the 70s. Everybody mm. say, I think I'm a bit of all right. You get a punch in the head from one of your brothers for that kind of talk. <laughs> so I put that away. And I also very much wanted marriage and children. So I grabbed onto that pretty quickly. I was only 22 by the time I had my first baby and was married. Um, but the bug never left. And then Alice Springs had an inordinate amount of art comes out of that place and well my husband he he was a local Adelaide boy um and our families knew each other Chris and I hadn't met but my sister knew his brother very connected South Australian Catholics (laughs) he I'd actually been uh I I formed a guard of honor at his mother and sister's funeral uh in 1980 I think it was because that little girl she was 11 my sister-in-law I never met her but um she was killed in a light plane crash with Christopher's mother. And, um, yeah, I formed a guard of honour at their funeral and I'll never forget that day. And I think that was kind of a, a, a weird, what is that? Do you call that a coincidence? That's <laughs> not a coincidence. But it's serendipity or whatever. But yeah. so I met him and, yeah, I really, I really barged my way into his life in a way. So you met him at his mother and sister's funeral? That's when I first saw him and knew, yeah. knew of him and then I met him a couple of years later. Right. And it was, I didn't understand I had this codependency about me that I've had since a child. And when I went to rehab, my, I remember a counsellor saying to me, if you don't get your codependency under control, you know, you'll never get your alcoholism under control. And I really tried to wrap my head around what on earth is she talking about this codependency? And then when I understood it, and it does often come hand in hand with alcoholism, but well, I was codependent even in, you know, because he said, oh, a lot of his family had said I reminded him of his mother. His mother was a fun, vibrant 50-year-old and died with her 10-year-old daughter and left six other teenagers behind. And it was all, you know, my heart broke into a thousand pieces. And I thought, well, I'll be her and I'll fix everything. I'll marry you. and Make you happy. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, I didn't even understand why we allowed 22-year-olds to get married. <laughs> I mean, I do take my hat off to that girl, but I don't understand much about her anymore. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's extraordinary, though, for me to see, like, with that, with what you're talking about, the fact that you were married at 22, you, what, had your first child at, what, 24 or whatever? 23, yeah. 23. Um, I'm still here. Yeah, that you still formed a fabulous career because some would argue that then that's it once you get married and particularly back then and you're having all these children that that's the end of whether you're aspiring to be an actor or a comedian. Talk to me about that, how you manage to kind of pave your way to a career under those circumstances. I think my mother um, was a great support on the sidelines. Not that she was ever a stage mother, but she well and truly believed it was something I should do. And that, and mum's, you know, she could have done so much herself. You know, she had so many gifts and maybe that was why she encouraged it. But I didn't, as soon as I knew my mum was on board, I'm like, yeah, I can, of course I can. But I had no idea, Cheryl. Well, I didn't even see any obstacles because I didn't understand what the obstacles were. I mean, for me to do stand-up is an urban craft and how you begin a career in stand-up is you go down to your local club and you do three to five minutes tryout. They're called open mic and that's, the hierarchy of a comedy room. You, the open micer goes first and then mm-hmm. the middler, there's an MC and then the headliner. And I walked in, I, I asked for it, I applied for a $600 grant. Uh, there was an arts, the arts minister at the time was in the audience up in Alice Springs. I was about 27. Anyway, I was MCing. I was often the MC around town in Alice Springs because I was involved in the arts. And that's all I could really do. And I said, oh, I'll MC. And he was watching me MC and he said, you know, you're doing stand-up. That's stand-up. And I'd never seen a stand-up in the flesh. And he said, why don't you apply to my office for an arts grant we could do with a stand-up in the Northern Territory? So I did. I didn't know what to apply for. So I asked for $600. <laughs> I didn't want to be greedy. Yeah. So I love the way I just automatically, because back then, you'd still, you know, coach travel was still a thing. And I thought it was far too cheeky to ask for a flight. You know, who do I think I am? So I asked for a bus fare. That's why it's 600. And I took three days on a bus. I went down to the local backpackers and I interviewed various young... Where did you go? To the YMCA backpacker in Alice Springs to find a nanny. Right. And off I went on a bus and left... My husband and two children and a baby with the nanny and everyone thought I'd gone a bit mad. Um, so you'd had three children by then? I'd had three children, yeah. And, and was your very, husband supportive? 
He was. He was. Uh, I, I think he was a bit bemused at first, and then supportive for sure. Um, but I actually wasn't very good when I began. I was watching other comics, and I was doing setups and gags, and didn't realise that I'd picked up the wrong instrument, you know. And then when I threw my hat back in the ring properly in 2000, that's when I threw out every joke I've ever written and just decided to tell stories. And I've never really looked back since then. But I I did those McCafferty bus trips about three times. Tell me when you remember the alcoholism kicking in. Is that a conscious memory? Was it the day that I did this or the day that I did that or was it gradual? There are days that I know were turning points. Right. I remember when I, w- I would have been in my mid-30s where, and that was the first time I ever drank on a hangover. Yeah. See, I hated hangovers because I drank too much and I had the inverse allergy. I didn't know that and that just means, you know, a, a true alcoholic. When there's alcohol in our system, we scream for it like mother's milk. You know, the trick is never put it in your system and then you can't, if you don't have the first drink, you can't get drunk, can you? So, but I remember being very, very sick with a hangover this day and I had 20 people coming for lunch. Um, it was my brother-in-law's recovery after his 40th birthday the night before and I was having hosting recovery lunch. And that was nothing new to me to have that many people coming to my house, but I was just terribly hungover and my sister-in-law said, come here. And she took me into the kitchen. She could see how hungover I was and she poured me a shot of whiskey and she said, down that and you'll feel better. And I did. And I did. And mm. and I remember thinking, wow, I can tuck that back in here for, you know, it's all these things that, you know, I thought it was a solution. In fact, I always thought it was a solution. You know, I'd have a couple of drinks and I could never fathom going on stage without a couple of drinks. But so that was a turning point. And then I remember after the first Adelaide Fringe, I didn't even realise that I'd become physically dependent on alcohol. It's like going to a 21st, 30 nights in a row, and you're, uh, you know, and it's your 21st. <laughs> 30 days of that, 30 nights of that, and I was at my sister's house and going back to the way I used to behave, which is just stop drinking because the show's over. And I uh, went into full, nearly seizure. Uh, DTs. Yeah. Wow. So you then so, you just kept going. Well, I don't. I don't know, know what I did that particular night. I wouldn't have drunk that night because it was well before I was that type type of alcoholic, you know. Yeah. And then it's very. It, it didn't take long. In fact, I think when I first went public, that was when it was very dangerous because I went public with a disease that I had no idea what it was. Yeah. It, how can you be public about something you don't understand? I had so little understanding of the disease and it is extraordinary because there's so many dead people in my family tree from this disease. And I'm furious that every alcoholic has to take this burden of shame and take it on, even after they're dead. You know, Mm. it it sickens me because alcoholism has been around as long as alcohol and as long as there's alcohol, there will always be alcoholics because they know that about 10% of human beings that drink, it will be ruinous too. Mm-hmm. That's 10%. I, I reflect on my childhood and, you know, like teenage years and high school and thinking about, you know, we all go out and get a drink and, of course, we all got drunk, but some of us never stopped getting drunk. Like there's always one person yes. that just kept going. It wasn't funny anymore. 
Yeah. Um, and I remember reflecting on that back then, thinking, how does that person get out of that hole? But no one recognises it. No. It's got such a stigma to it, doesn't it? That is the shame of it because yeah. it's, the, it's the early detection like any disease. I was speaking to my sister Kate today about it because she's only just read the book and she's, I said to her, really, I was very sick and I'm walking around running a life and I shouldn't have. Someone should have taken over. Yeah. Hey, when we think of comedians, I don't know how to say this, but I guess when we think of comedians, they're never as happy as you think they are, are they? No. Why is that, do you think? I think it's a lot of comedians would have uh, probably ADD. Uh, ah, the kids yeah. were the kids that stared out of the window a lot and our intelligence could never be measured Yeah, with school you know, you can't be stupid to be a stand-up, but you can be uneducated, you know. But yeah. You can be uneducated, but you can't be dumb. And yeah. um, I, when I, I – we've got this label we call ourselves bruised fruit. <laughs> it's funny. I think Tom Gleason's the only comedian I know with his head screwed. <laughs> yeah, right. He, he applies a very scientific maths mind as well. He's got left and right brain. Most comics are just left brain. Now, a uh, half an hour has gone really quickly, so we have to wind up in a minute. But I want to know how you are now. Now uh, that this book's out in the world, how are you feeling? You look sensational, I will say that, but this is a podcast. so I feel very powerful and it's a beautiful thing. And I've never felt this before. I feel so excited. The, the thing that recovery gives you is not just your life back. You get a better life back. You really do because the work you have to do is work on yourself. You have to examine your life. You have to live and examine life and you have to do it every day. And I know that's a good way to live, you know, to at the end of the day you, you check in on your conscience, you know, and what was that move for? Was that a dick move? You know, not obsessively, but just check yourself. And I, I remember telling my mum that this is part of what the work of recovery is. And she said, well, everybody should do that. And I said, I know everybody should do that, but I said, imagine how powerful it is when you have to do it to save your life. You know, it's a, I, I'm so grateful for the any other disease. You know, there's downsides to this disease because it's largely not seen as a disease, thereby making the alcoholic feel like it is just me. I'm the dickhead. You know, I'm the idiot that can't control myself. Mm. Um, but now, yeah, I feel extremely powerful. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> Well, I think that's terrific. Yeah. I think that is really fantastic and a great place to be. I can't thank you enough, Fiona, for talking with me today. And I know it's it's really, they're intimate conversations in a way. So you're so brave to share them with me and to our oh, listeners. And I thank you so much. You're a bloody easy woman to share things with. Thank you, Cheryl. Really appreciate it. If you'd like more information about Better Eating, follow us on Facebook or visit bettereating.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, 
join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.